Welcome to Parkside. All right. <laughs> uh, my name is Chris. I am one of the pastors here, and um, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we do have uh, baptisms this morning, and so uh, once our, uh, we're done with communion this morning, uh, we will uh, sing a couple songs, and we'll have, we have five baptisms, so that'll be exciting. So please uh, just want to let you know that, so stick around uh, for that part here. If I have, uh, we have five young people, it'll be awesome. So we're going to wait through the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. As a church, we like to practice just kind of, we call it expository preaching, which is basically, I'm not up here to get on a soapbox to tell you about some uh, new political uh, issue or something. My, my objective is, to, is whatever the, the passage says. That's my objective. Whatever's next is what we talk about. And so that's where we are today is Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, this is Jesus is greater than the old covenant, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to explain that to you and and uh, see the glory of Christ in this. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would bless your word. And uh, today, you give us ears to hear. God, give us hearts to believe. Um, God, some here today come with heavy burdens on their shoulders. Uh, Lord, too heavy to bear. And uh, I pray today that they would lay all these down at your feet. And that, God, they would find hope. Um, they would find their soul satisfied with you who you are, what you came to do. I pray for those who do not know you, God, that they would understand today what this whole Bible and Jesus stuff is all about. And God, why you, why you truly did live a life, God, that we could not possibly live, and then you died a death we should have died to save us, to bring us to yourself. May, uh, may some experience that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we believe, um, as a church, we believe the Bible is really one story. I know if you open it up, there's, there's lots of little books inside of this book, but it's really one book, one story. Uh, it's not a story of morality. It's not a, a book of rules on how to live your life. It's not a book of uh, short stories compiled to give you examples on how to live your life. That's not the point. That's not the goal of the book. Uh, it's, a, it's a story. It's a true story about a God who is on mission, a God on mission to redeem his people and his creation. As a matter of fact, if, if the Bible was a play, it would have four acts to it. You know, right? There's four acts to it. There's, there's creation, there's the fall, where we fell into sin as a human race, there's redemption in Christ, and there's future restoration. Okay, that's it. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the whole storyline of what is, what is happening in the Bible. And so as the Bible moves along, as you begin to read it, you run across characters, right? You run across uh, situations. Uh, it starts off at the beginning. We find Adam and Eve uh, God disclosing, got information to them. They decided they didn't want to follow God, right? They decided they had a better idea for their life. Uh, they sinned. They disobeyed God. They went the other direction. God covered them with animal skins. A creature had to die to cover over their shame. That was all a, a picture of ultimately what Jesus would come to do. Uh, we find God make a promise to a man named Abraham, saying he'll, he'll bless the world through, through this man, which ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus. As the Bible rolls along, we see a guy named David who acts as king. And again, pointing to Jesus who would be the ultimate king. We see sacrifices being made in the Old Testament. And uh, for sin, that all points to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. We see priests representing man to God and God to man. And they all point ultimately to Jesus who would fulfill that and be our priest, between, mediator between God and man. And so all these stories take place. And what has typically been called in the church, what we typically call this, is called the Old Testament. Right? So if you look at the very beginning of your Bible, you see those lists of books. Sometimes you'll see them broken up, and they're New Testament, Old Testament, right? Uh, books. Well, these stories are all in the Old Testament. Same word, by the way, is the Old Covenant. That's what we're talking about today. It's the same word, Old Testament, Old Covenant, same word. Um, and so now when it's, it's called old, let me explain that to you. It's called old not because it's irrelevant, 
Not because it's out of date, um, like, you know, like a leisure suit or something like that. Um, if you're wearing one, no, no offense. <laughs> Honey, I really like your leisure suit. Don't let them tell you any different. Um, you know, but it, it, it's full of stories, right? It's, all, it's, it's full of stories. It's uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant. You'll find uh, some very interesting stories, stories that would like modern day, if they happen, they'd be like on Jerry Springer. I mean, it's, it gets pretty, pretty racy back there. Um, it's full of conversations and contracts and deals that God makes with people. And here's the deal. They always break those deals. Okay. They always break them. They never follow through. And all of that was to point to them to the one who wouldn't break them. The one who would bring healing and hope and forgiveness and ultimate access to God. As the author puts it today in Hebrews 8, he, speaking of Jesus, came to inaugurate a new covenant, a new deal, as it were. So the word covenant now is much more than uh, a contract, okay? It was meant to be much more than just a contract, a deal. It was a relationship that was legally binding. It was supposed to point and bring about intimacy. That was the whole point of a covenant, was to bring about intimacy, much like a, a marriage contract would be today. But the old covenant, it didn't bring intimacy, right? It didn't bring in intimacy. It was more, it did serve as more like a business contract, um, because it, uh, it couldn't bring a lot of things, but Jesus could and did. He brought a new covenant, a new testament, one that brought man to God and God to man and fulfilled everything that the old covenant had hoped to bring about. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 is going to tell us that Jesus was the only one that could do this. Right? God had to intervene himself. No human being could fulfill this for us. No human being could, could fulfill it even themselves. There had to be a new covenant, a new deal, right? better than better than even one that FDR or Trump could bring about, right? There had to be a greater high priest, one who could represent God and man fully and bring man to God. Another word that the Bible uses to summarize this, this conversation is the word we call gospel. If you're new to this, you may have heard that word before. That's a, a good, gospel is a good summary word of what this whole new covenant is all about. Gospel is a word translated means good news, okay? It's good news, and that's important. Jesus brought good news, all right? He didn't bring good advice, all right? Didn't bring good advice. Um, it, it's not advice. It's news, all right? It's a new covenant. It's what it's all about. News is about something that is something or someone who has really come to do something, has brought about something that we couldn't do for ourselves, which is be made right with God, be in relationship with God. Jesus brought about legality, fulfilled the law, the rules, and yet brought about intimacy, relationship, right, with God and man. That's what that, what that was. He brought good news, something that was accomplished for us, not good advice for us to do. So uh, bottom line is that Jesus came to complete the story, okay? He came to complete the story. He came to fulfill the law, do what the old covenant could only dream of. As we'll see today, if you truly believe the, this gospel, this news that Jesus has brought to us and what he's accomplished, and you move, a, move away from religion, we'll talk about that a lot because you may think those are the same thing and they're not, um, and you move away from the lies of being self-made, I can do this myself, and embrace the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're going to find that what happens is you move, and this is kind of our outline today, you're going to move from shadow to substance, from law to grace, from information to true transformation, right? Distance to intimacy and covering to true forgiveness, all right? That's what we're going to look at today. Look at each of those. Number one, shadow to substance. What the author is going to tell us here in the first five verses, uh, we move from shadow to substance. So he says here in the beginning of verse one, the point that we are saying, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand, a minister in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And he goes on to say, now, if we were on earth, uh, he, could, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. All right, that may be a lot of words. Let me explain that. 
So we saw the last two weeks we've been together is that uh, how Jesus is the true and better priest, right? He is the one who fulfilled all that the priest was hoping to do in the Old Testament, especially the high priest. And the author is continuing that thought, continuing to build on that. And he's comparing Jesus to those earthly kind of Jewish uh, priests that they had. And his point is that Jesus isn't up there in heaven, okay, right now, just kind of kicking it in his divine lazy boy watching the Super Bowl, right, just kind of sitting back on this divine throne thing and just doing nothing. The work here, he says he's working. He's, he's a priest. He's active. He is ministering, as verse 2 says. And the writer has told us in the book of Hebrews a lot of things that Jesus is doing right now, okay? A lot of things he's doing. Um, he's not, he's, what he's not doing is offering sacrifices for sin. He did that once for all, we saw last week. Hebrews said he's, he's ruling over the world right now. He's hearing our prayers. He's dispatching angels. He's sympathizing with us. He's anchoring our faith. He's advocating um, he is offering here gifts, it says, to the Father, by the way, which is our worship, praise, and, uh, and repentance and gratitude. Bottom line, Jesus is at work right now. He's an active priest. He's at work. But notice verse 5 here. The writer is doing more than pointing to Jesus as a better priest. He's pointing to Jesus as the real priest. You see that language? Uh, the others were just shadows. Jesus is actually substance. Look at verse 5. They serve, these priests serve as a copy or shadow of the heavenly things here. And he goes on to talk about this Moses character, which you may be familiar with. In the Old Covenant, Moses was told to build a tent, right, or a tabernacle where God's presence would be and where the priests could access God for the people. And what he built, what Moses built, was a copy, a shadow of this real tabernacle tent where Jesus is currently ministering in heaven. It's not a knock against the, the tent in the Old Testament. It was temporary, it was inadequate, but it wasn't false. So the contrast here is between temporary and something that's permanent. Now, the word here for copy and shadow carries the idea of a sketch. The earthly priesthood is, is, was unreal, as it were. It was a sketch. It was a caricature, a blueprint. You ever gone to those places and they do a caricature of you, you know, and make you look funny when they draw you? That's kind of the thing. The priests were a, were a sketch or a caricature. Uh, thus, being a copy, being a, a, a print, as it were, it, they could not lead us into reality, okay? What is real? But Jesus, because he's real, and what the true substance is, could lead us into the real. The Old Testament, as it were, was a sketch. Two-dimensional black and white picture. Jesus is flesh and bone, 3D. Uh, thus, Jesus brings us into real life, real reality. So the tabernacle and temple were a shadow. The priests were a shadow. The animal sacrifices were a shadow. And when Christ came, the shadows began, began to fall away. Right? He fulfilled. He was reality breaking into all of the shadows. You say, I don't understand what you're talking about. There was, a, there was an old um, Greek philosopher named, named, named Plato, not, not Play-Doh, by the way, it's Plato, um, not Plato you play with, but he was, a, he was a philosopher, and he proposed that everything we see now and hear and touch is but a shadow or reflection of some real counterpart in another world. You're like, whoa, that's like Matrix. Like, yeah, it's like Matrix or Man in the High Castle kind of stuff, right? This is what he's talking about. In other words, nothing, nothing here, as he would, he would propose, is really real. It's only a picture of what is real in another universe. Okay? This is what this Greek philosopher was talking about. They understood, that the, what, bottom line is, they understood there was something more to life than what you can see, taste, or touch, right? There's something beyond what's right in front of me. Uh, the problem was that they, didn't, they couldn't figure out, how do I pass from what I see into something I know that's got to be real that I can't see, right? How do I go from shadow to substance? How do I get into that space? And that's really, guys, the very heart of what religion is built on in our world today. It's an acknowledgement. Religion is an acknowledgement that you know there's something more to life than what's in front of us. An acknowledgement that there's, there's something there, and we've got to attempt to get to it. And so what do they do? 
We attempt to get from shadow to substance. And that's what we do. Whatever your views today, you know, deep down there's more to life than what is right in front of you. That's why more than we can just grasp with our senses. There's something beyond what is right here. This is why even as a culture, we turn out movies, right, that are otherworldly. You know, think about your Avengers and your Avatars and Star Wars kind of films. These are otherworldly type things. It's why there's such thing as addiction in our culture, a deep-seated dissatisfaction that drives us to keep going back again and again and again to the things that even destroy us, right? We, we want to go beyond what we, what we have. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, he said this. He says, look, if I find in myself, and I think this is a very logical point, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, in other words, if there's nothing, I keep having to go back again and again and again, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly desires were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse and suggest the real thing, the substance, the reality. There were, something is beyond here because I can't get satisfied with what's right here. So we know that something is transcendent, right? No matter what your view is today, no matter where you come from today, what your, your beliefs are today, everything cannot be reduced to a test to. Something is beyond us. Even our culture today, secularists today, acknowledge that the true materialist, materialist is the belief that, you know, there's nothing else besides what I can see right in front of me or touch. Even those are, are diminishing. That belief is diminishing over and over again every year. We are growing more religious as a people in our entire world every year. Matter of fact, The Guardian, it's a news outlet from the UK, ran an article recently called Why Faith is Becoming More and More Popular, saying that over 84% of the world claims to be religious in some form. They also say that people in this, in this 84%, he said, they, they go and argue, they say, look, that people in the 84% are having more children than the people who are in the other 16%, which means that our culture is only going to become more and more and more religious as time goes on. Even corporations are buying into this. Um, a few years ago, LA Times had an article entitled Tapping Into the Power of Mindfulness, where companies are embracing this idea that we need to help our employees get beyond what's right in front of them. A reflection on the other, they call it. Train them to be better employees. So we find uh, Google and General Mills they actually have classes for their employees to help them learn some sort of other material thing, something outside of the material. They acknowledge that their employees need to focus on something other than that. In short, they're attempting to move from shadow to substance, right? There's got to be something better, more substantive than what's in front of us. And so every religion in the world has a plan on how to move from shadow to substance, right? They all have a plan. Some say it's through sacrifices and offerings. Others say it's through moral codes. Others say it's through prayer and meditation or transformation of consciousness or humming or whatever it is. There's all some, some sort of thing that we have to do to get us into that other world. They all see God or some being beyond, really is kind of like a divine pinata, all right? You guys know what a pinata from L.A., so pinatas are very popular out in L.A. The pinata full of candy, you know, with the kids that get the stick, you blindfold them. This is real dangerous, by the way. And then tell them to start swinging. <laughs> Back away, kids. Um, but, you know, they, they treat God like a divine pinata, and everything they do is that stick. And so they beat him, and they beat him, and they beat him in hopes that he'll yield the good stuff, Right? That's how it works in religion, right? You just, you just beat God with your stick, whatever it is, whatever works you're doing, prayers, giving, meditation, attendance, whatever it is, and hope that he'll give you the good stuff. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't yield, doesn't make your life easier, we, like a bunch of toddlers, throw a hissy fit, and then we go like, you know what? I'm done. I'm moving on to another, another God. I'm going to go try something else. So we take our stick and we go find another pinata to beat, right? That's kind of what we do as a cult. That's what religion does. 
But here the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, he is the substance. But here's the deal, guys. We, we don't reach for him. He reaches for us. He, he reaches into the shadows, which is where we live. Uh, Jesus came to bring an end to the pictures and the drawings and the sketches and point us to the real thing, namely himself. And the bottom line is that Jesus came to bring an end to religion. Did you know that? Jesus came to bring an end to religion. He didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come to better a religion. He came to do away with it altogether. That's why, and this explains why in ancient Rome, this may be something you didn't know about, but they would accept all kinds of crazy religions, right? They had like 300 sanctioned religions. And we talk about this in Hebrews. Remember, Christianity was barred. It was illegal. You couldn't be a Christian and living in ancient Rome. And the reason they said that was because they called Christians atheists. That may be awkward to you. Like, what? Why were Christians called atheists back then? Because they had no outward form of religion. They didn't have their priests. They didn't have their temples. They didn't have their sacrifices that everybody else had. Everyone had their own priests and sacrifices, temples. Christians didn't have that. That was all fulfilled in Jesus, right? That's why they called them atheists. They had no outward form of religion. Um, and so Christianity was, becomes not only that, but it becomes an attack for them. It became an attack against religion altogether, right? It was actually anti-religion. It was an end to all other religions. Christianity, Christians were saying that the substance had stepped into the shadows and solved the riddles and completed the story, and that offended every person in Rome. They didn't like that. That's why we as a human race killed Jesus, right? That's why we crucified him. We saw him as a threat. He threatened everything we built our life on. He was saying basically, you know what? All of life is about me, and it's not about you. It's about my accomplishment for you and not your accomplishments for me. And you know, we didn't like that very much. We didn't like that at all. We didn't like that idea. We wanted to build our own little towers of Babel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the story, we wanted to build our own tower of Babel, build ourselves up to God. We'll make our way there. We'll do our stuff. We'll get our merits. Didn't want that. Jesus got in our way, so we killed him, buried him under a personal human achievement monument, right? That's what we did. So the second thing we get here is that we move from law to grace in the Old Testament to the New, move from law to grace. So starting in verse 6, we see this um, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, you see that, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, on better promises. So you see the language, right? More excellent, better, new. Jesus was the substance, he was the reality, and the problem was that Judaism as a religion had taken the old covenant and had elevated it to a point of possible achievement. They had turned the entire covenant on its head, treating it as an end, right, as opposed to Jesus being the end of it. And so Jesus brought a new covenant with greater promises, and those better promises are the promises of actual, get this, actual transformation, real transformation, real access to God, and real intimacy with God. You had the old covenant, was basically obey and I'll bless you, disobey and I'll crush you, right? The news now, the good news here is that, is that uh, the, the new, new Testament is I'll show you grace and my grace will change you from the inside out so you don't want to disobey. You say, well, why do people not like that idea? Why is that not popular? Because when it's all about Jesus, think about it this way. When it's all about Jesus and not about you, people don't like not getting credit. We don't like not getting credit. We get upset at that. We may talk about religion, how much we, we hate it, but reality is we love it. We want to hang our hat on something. Uh, we want to call the shots. We want to feel like we are at least better, here it is, better than somebody else, right? I am better than this person. At least there's somebody, I am a, I'm higher up the ladder than they are. And so we want to feel that. We want to hang our hat on that. And when it's all about Jesus, and that means, guys, we have no shots to call. We have no shots to call. He calls the shots. We have no leverage with him. You see what that means? 
I got no leverage. I can't say, well, God, I did this. You owe me. <laughs> I don't have any leverage. And we don't like that idea. He has all the leverage. We have, no, we have no choice but to submit. And that's a lot of pride to swallow. So instead of we go back to looking at the law, trying to accomplish it, try to, try to accomplish it, try to gain a name for ourselves, try to gain leverage, but we fail. That's what verse 7 says. It says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The problem wasn't the law. Paul makes this very clear in Romans. It wasn't the law, it was the people. We used the law in the wrong way. We were trying to use it as stairs um, on a ladder to climb our way to God. In reality, every, every stair had knives on it, as it were. And the more we tried to climb it, the more we hurt ourselves in the process. It couldn't be climbed. It couldn't be climbed. We needed someone to bring us to God. Someone to, as it were, to climb that ladder for us and put us on their back and carry us. And as it were, we were climbing up the mountain to get there. We needed, we needed someone to carry us. And that was the whole point of the law. Jesus came to do that. But that didn't stop people from trying, right? Can you imagine... I imagine God looking down at us hardheads, you know, and being like, you know, are you still trying to climb that ladder? Are you, are, have you had enough yet? Are you, are you done? Are you giving up yet? This is important because some of you, maybe you're here for the first time in a long time, maybe you've been in church in a long time and you haven't been around, and you, some of you think that that's what Christianity is all about, climbing that ladder, right? And you think that it was a point in your life where you quit on Christianity, that you gave up on Christianity, you walked away from it, but the reality is, is what you walked away from was religion. You walked away from religion. No wonder, because you're like looking at those people and you're like, man, this is exhausting. Why do people put themselves through this stuff? This is miserable. Why would these people do this? But again, none of this has stopped the world from trying, right? I mean, religious people go all in. I mean, they, they try everything they can to, to do this. They look miserable in the process a lot of times. Like someone slipped like Lemon, lime juice and lemon juice into the communion cups. It's like, uh, they don't look very happy doing it. They try very hard. And the more moral they try to be, the more outwardly they try to get everything together and appear to be that way, the more pride and self-righteousness starts to build up, right? And so the law, even when it's semi-accomplished, even when you can, can get the chart and be like, yeah, I did that, did that, even when you fulfill it, it brings about arrogance and pride and you break the whole thing, right? That's what Paul will talk about in Romans 7. I had this in my house. I had, um, my boys were younger, I've got two boys, two girls, and, uh, and so we were in Los Angeles, uh, is where, where they were and where they grew up, <clears throat> and I was having my two boys, I was trying to disciple them to be men, right, we're gonna, you're gonna be men, this is what it's gonna look like, and one of those aspects was like, hey, you need to take care of your sisters, you know, you need to take care of them, look after them, you need to take care of each other, this is what it's gonna look like, you could be boys need to lead the way in that way, and so I remember, um, and that was kind of the goal, that was our kind of Barksdale rule at the house, like, boys, okay, I'm gonna teach you this, you need to take care of your sisters, one day, I think I've told you a story before, but they, um, one day that all backfired on me. I remember uh, we had this problem out in L.A. with stray cats. Stray cats everywhere. I mean, they were, they were a disaster. And one time we were, they were gathering on the roof of our garage, a bunch of them. And Calvin came running, who was like, he was probably four or five at the time. You know, he comes running up to us, and he goes like, Hey, you go, oh my word, look at all these cats. And you look at all these cats, you know. And, all these, and so we go look at the window, and we're like, oh, man, it's like they're they're trying to procreate, all right? So, I mean, it's like, it's bad. You know, hairballs are, it's awful. I mean, hairballs are flying, there's screaming going on, and we're like, oh, this is, this is a problem, right? We've got to solve this. So Sophie, my oldest daughter, uh, decides, she goes, you know what, I'll take care of this. I will shoo them off. And we all kind of snicker and laugh because we're going like one step outside the door and a cat looks at her raw. <laughs> She's running back inside. That's not going to happen. So my, my oldest son steps up, came and steps up and goes, you know what, Sophie, don't you do that. I'll take care of that. Dad's been teaching me how to do this. I'm, I'm going to take care of that for you. So I'm thinking to myself, like, this is awesome. All right, this is good. Like, this is, it's working, you know? 
He, as soon as he said that, he looked at all of them and goes, ha, ha, I'm the man, I'm the man, like that. I'm like, ah, oh. like it's the exact opposite of what I was trying to accomplish, right? So, so even in fulfilling the law of the Barksdale home, it actually just made him more arrogant at that point, right? It's like, look what I did. And that's what happens with the laws, with the things we try to keep. Even if you keep them, they just backfire on you and just make you more self-righteous and anger. Point is, the law can't transform us, guys. Keeping rules will not transform us. The law was never meant to do that. And even if we think we accomplish it, it only turns into arrogance and self-righteousness. Religion can't gain access to God. It can't give us intimacy with God. For even when we keep it, we break it. So the old covenant we turned into, we turned, um, into religion, it wasn't, it wasn't intimate, didn't bring on intimacy. It was about business. It was based on works, and we tried to bridge the gap to be our own mediators. Our failure meant that God turned away from us. You see that in verse 9. It was all about saying, you know what, I will. I will do this. I will accomplish this. The new covenant is intimacy. It's relationship. It's grace-based. Jesus bridges the gap. And our failure meant that God turned away from our sin and onto Jesus. It was all about Jesus saying, I will. Notice that, verses 8 through 12, all the I will statements. I will do this. I will do this. Number three, information to transformation. Verse 10, the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and would give, um, write them on their hearts. Now, under the old covenant, they were told to write the law down. Remember, it came in stone tablets. And they were told to write it on their hands, write it on their foreheads. They had these things called phylacteries, what they called them. And they're little boxes they put on their hands and on their forehead. And it was the laws kind of, kind of put onto themselves. And so they, um, they would be reminded of how they, they were supposed to fill this and fulfill and how badly they were failing. They had plenty of information. They memorized large portions of the law, and yet they didn't experience transformation. Listen to this one, just listen to this one command, how crazy this command is. Listen to this, Ezekiel 18.30. I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Repent and turn from all of your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all of your transgressions that you have committed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. I didn't make that up. It's right there. You see do you see how impossible that is? Make yourself a new heart, guys. Make it. Come on, build it up. Can, can you possibly do that? In other words, transform yourself on the inside. That was part of the law. That was impossible. And the point was to point them to God. That was the whole point. You, there's a familiar story maybe in John chapter 3. It's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Right? John 3 is a story of this guy named Nicodemus. Right? And Jesus is talking to him. He's actually referencing the story. And Nicodemus can't get it because Jesus is telling him, hey, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born on the outside. So, something's got to happen to you outside. And Nicodemus is like, what, is, what are you talking about? I've got to be born like, physically? What? What's going on? He's completely lost his whole story because he's still trying to build himself a new heart. Build himself a new, a new heart in that way, a new transformation. But we need a divine intervention. And this is what the same book, Ezekiel, that was 18. Now listen to Ezekiel 36. I will, notice what God says here, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean from your uncleanness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the law on one hand said, you've got to build, build this for yourself. You've got to have transformation on the inside. Transform yourself. Change yourself. And God goes, I'll change you. In the same book. That's the new covenant he's talking about. That's, what, that's the new deal, as it were. You realize that you have come to Christ. You have God himself living inside of you. He's taken up residence in your heart. This explains a newfound, maybe, sensitivity to sin that you've experienced. 
a deep desire to see more of Jesus, aspirations to live for something more than yourself, make a name not for yourself but for Jesus. That's what happens when you come to know Christ. Transformation starts to take place. There was a film uh, uh, called Amazing Grace uh, made some years ago about the story of William Wilberforce. He's the man who abolished slave trade in, in the UK back in, um, back in 1700s. And uh, he was, uh, one day he was sitting outside in the grass, and uh, he, was, he was a politician, like he had all this business to get to, and, uh, and his butler come to him and figured out, like, why aren't, you at the, why aren't you at work? Like, what are you doing out here in the grass? And he said this, he said, it's, it's God. <laughs> I have 10,000 gauges of state today, but I'd prefer to spend the day out here getting wet, studying dandelions and marveling at spider's webs. In other words, he was like, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know why I'm wasting my time here, but I'm mesmerized by God and what he's made. And he couldn't explain it. His butler said, so um, you found God, sir? That's what his butler said. And William Wilberforce responded, he says, I think he found me. He's like, you have any idea how inconvenient that is? How idiotic that's going to sound? I have a political career glittering ahead of me, and in my heart, I just want to look at spider's webs. Right? He's like, I mean, my whole heart has been transformed. My whole life is, I don't even understand it. But God has come after me. I didn't want this. (laughs) It totally transformed my life. Number four, distance to intimacy. Verse 10 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, we want to be a people. Everybody wants to be a people. We want to belong. That's why we throw ourselves in with our favorite sports teams, right? We throw ourselves in with our favorite music, our favorite films. We, We dress a certain way, right? We obey the rules, whatever they may be, for our desired group to belong and be a part. We want to be a part. In short, we get religious to belong. We don't call it religious, but that's what we're doing. We're getting religious to belong. But here we find God saying, if you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus you'll be my people. Right? You'll be my people. You'll belong to me. You don't have to jump through any more hoops anymore. You don't have to try to appease anybody else. You don't have to worry about anybody else's opinion of you. You'll have the opinion of the one person in the, in the universe that actually matters. You'll be my people. You can lay all that stuff down. You know how freeing that is? When we talk about intimacy and transformation. So, so religion, even irreligion at that, this point, is an attempt through our efforts to become a people, to belong, to have people like us and accept us. But the gospel makes us a people, right? Think about life under the old covenant. They were the people of God, but they didn't have intimacy, intimacy with God. They knew God, but they didn't really know, know God, right? They had very limited access to God. He was in a cloud or he was in a pillar of fire, right? If you're familiar with these Old Testament stories, Um, Or he was in a temple where only one person once a year could go inside. I mean, so it was very limited in terms of access to him. In the New Covenant, though, it says we will know him intimately. And it's not know as in like like know know the president of the United States, like I know who that is, like factual information. But know as in intimacy, like your spouse. That's what he's talking about. That's the kind of knowledge we're talking about here. God promised that every member of the New Covenant community would know him directly and personally. How was that? That's why he took on human flesh. That's why he lived among us. You notice that if you read the New Testament, Jesus wasn't in the cloud. He wasn't in a pillar of fire. He wasn't holed up in a room for people to come visit him and see him, right? What was he doing? He was walking around. He was with the people. He was out in the public, right? This is what he did. He was with the people. That's why John 1.14 says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. That's why Jesus will remain this way even on the newer. If you talk about that restoration part in the future... That's why he'll be, he'll be God-man still. Revelation 21, I heard a voice, a loud voice, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is in the newer, the future. We will do, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, personally wipe them away. 
death shall be no more. Uh, Revelation 22, 3 and 4, last chapter of the Bible. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see, they would see his face. It's personal, right? Intimacy with God. In the gospel, again, we move from shadow to substance, law to grace, information to transformation, distance to intimacy, and finally, we go from a covering to true forgiveness. We all deeply want to be forgiven, truly forgiven. So here's what it says in verse 12. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Under the old covenant, true permanent forgiveness was pictured, but in Jesus, the reality was brought. People weren't made right with God through sacrificing animals. They were made right with God by faith, which later on when we get to Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that. It was all by faith. It wasn't by the actions that they accomplished. The sacrifices, when done in faith, pointed to the one who would die to cover their sin. So ultimate forgiveness found its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. That's why in the Old Covenant they were told it was coming. Listen to these verses. These are crazy. Uh, Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 6, 7. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Isaiah 38, 17, in love you have delivered my life in the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions, wipes them off the ledger. I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. Your sins are like a mist, like that fog that appeared, you know, this morning, yesterday morning, gone, right? It just disappears. So here's the deal. The new covenant, God picks you up. Here's the, here's the beauty of the new covenant. Be in relationship with God through Christ. God picks you up when you fall. Dusts you off, as it were, and says, keep, keep running. Keep going, right? Um, the falls, this is important now, the falls, the sins, he doesn't count against you, he says. He puts them behind his back. doesn't remember them anymore. This is, this is crazy. Think about this as a parent. If you've got toddlers, remember this when they, were, when they were little, right? Think about when your toddlers start to walk, okay, when they start to walk. For the longest time, um, <laughs> Sophia did what we called the wounded army crawl, which was like the one arm crawling around on one arm. Like it actually just made her go in a circle the whole time, right? She would just crawl in a circle. And, um, and so we, but we never, but I never got down and said, oh my word, girl, will you, it's been nine months. Can you please get up and start walking, right? And I never, never said that. We were, just, we were excited when she would start to get up and she would, she would start to walk, right? And when you did that, you start to think, man, I just wish she would stay on her back a little bit longer, Right? But I don't think they intended to, like that one step turned to another step. It's not like they get up and go like, I'm going to walk now. They just take that one step, and they're like, oh, I took one, and I got the second one. And it just kind of happens, right? It's kind of how that works. And so we as parents, right, we, we celebrate that. So they take a couple steps, they face plant, you know, we're like, yay, way to do a face plant. That's awesome, right? We, we, cel- we almost, almost celebrate the fall, but we celebrate the walk that led to the fall, right? And it, it just kind of progressed. Never, ever did we, did we ever think about the falls as parents, right? We just love that they start walking. Again, never do I go down and say, kid, when are you going to learn, right? I mean, I can walk. Your mom can walk. I can get Dodger and my dog with a Skittle to walk around his back legs around the kitchen, right? I can do, I can get all kinds. I mean, everyone can walk. Why can't you walk? We don't talk about that. We just celebrate the steps. And when they fall, okay, when they fall, as often as they fall, we never get frustrated by the falls. And the older they get, right, they become more bold, they start walking more, they start running, they start putting paper bags over their head and running through the house, which is a whole other story. 
All right, and we go through boxes of Band-Aids, right? You're binging up the boo-boos, you know, and like, all right, get, keep going. All right, you got it. Keep going, right? We're just excited about the movement. We're just helping them and celebrate. We're not, we're not getting on them for the falls. We're celebrating them for the movement. And listen to this. Matt Chandler says the following. He says, so it is with our Father, who rejoices in the steps and heals the falls. So it is with our Father, who loves to see us run and doesn't tire of picking us up when we fall in. That's the good news in all of this. The good news is for the man or woman who's running towards him, the falls do not appoint us to suffer wrath, but rather mercy, mercy towards iniquity. In fact, he says, I've forgotten all about the fall. In fact, I was so excited about you running that I forgot that you even fell. I was so excited about the fact that you were moving and you were running and you were healthy that I don't even remember that you fell. While most of us beat ourselves up over the fall, Jesus is going, what fall? I just saw you running. That's a new covenant, right? That, that's a new covenant of grace. Okay, get back up again. Keep moving. That's the beauty of that. That's why the last verse here, verse 13, says he makes the first obsolete, all right, and what is becoming obsolete, growing old, is ready to vanish away. The writer is saying that Jesus, getting into substance, all the rest was just shadows. He is the reality. The rest was just kind of a photo. He, was, he has brought a new covenant with better promises, better access, grace, intimacy, and forgiveness. And just to prove the point, history would unfold. When this book was written, about two or three years later after this book was written, we would find that all of Judaism, all that it banked its life on, all the sacrifices, the temples, the priests, you know what would happen in two years in 70 AD? The whole place would be leveled. Titus and the Romans would come in, and they would wipe out the entire temple area. Um, a big, big, huge kind of war would take place between the two, um, and things would begin to fall apart, right? And so he'd come and demolish the temple, and everything that it stood for, the whole temple would be leveled. There would be no more priesthood. There would be no more sacrifice. You wonder, where, where did all that go? It all ended at that point. And Jesus said this would happen in Luke 19. The picture, as it were, was literally destroyed. No more priesthood, no more sacrifices, no more holy of holies. It was all gone. And Jesus had another picture for us. While the picture of the Old Testament, um, Old Covenant passing away was seen in the destruction of the New Jerusalem, sorry, the destruction of Jerusalem, the inauguration of the New Covenant, Jesus would say, is seen in what we practice today and called communion, or we call the Last Supper. Jesus would say this, Matthew 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins jesus has us take communion as a people to remember that we're we're not under the old covenant anymore we're under the new there is intimacy right there's forgiveness there's access right there's 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 forgiveness and we, we take communion to remember that while while it was free to us salvation forgiveness and intimacy, all this stuff was free to us it wasn't free to him he inaugurated a new covenant, it says here, with what? His own blood. He purchased, he, he went through death, back out the other side and resurrected to give us new life, to give us intimacy and forgiveness and grace and access to God. So when we take communion, we're celebrating the new covenant. That's what Jesus tells us. We're celebrating that he, his body, like the bread, was broken for us, his blood was poured out for us like the juice. And we take it in remembrance of the fact that, God, thank you that I'm in a new covenant that I have grace unlimited. I'm, I have access to you without having to go through any priest. I don't have to do anything to talk to you. I have complete access to you, right? These are all the promises that we have in the new covenant. 
So what we do here as a church is we'll take time now, we'll take some quiet, there'll be any music playing, it'll just be quiet, it may be uncomfortable for you, but that's all right. We don't mind you being uncomfortable, it's okay. And we're going to be quiet. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to take some time right now to talk to God. Some of you may have not talked to God in a very long time. We're going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to stop talking. And you'll get the opportunity to talk to God yourself. And as you do, you can confess any sin that you have, anything that you want to get off your shoulders, anything burdens you want to lay down. You don't have to go through a priest. You go directly to him. You have that through Christ. And when you're ready, you can come forward or to the back. There's bread. There's juice at the tables. We take the communion in remembrance of him, and we give our offerings as a response in worship as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. God, really, the, just keeps pointing us to everything that the Bible says, everything in the Old Testament, everything, every story, every person, every law. God, it all points to you. Jesus, you are what life is all about. Every bit of our life, every breath we breathe, it's all about you. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for this access we have with you, this forgiveness, this grace, the door that's been opened, the veil that has been torn. May God today, may we not take, get old, get, uh, let that get old to us. May we not take advantage of that thought. May we marvel right now at the fact that we can talk to you, that you hear us. And that day, there's coming a day, Lord, when we're with you, eternity on a new earth, and we'll see you face to face where the shadow truly will turn into substance. And so, God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together as a people. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.